My name is Kodo. Okay. Uh, yeah, welcome. It seems to be 2023. And um, for those of you who came in during the sitting, at the beginning I explained usually I'm in a sweater and slacks and etc. But um, my robes were just too cozy to take off today, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do that. Brief story to start. So, let's see, I don't know, going on 800 years ago, a, uh, there was a monk in his 20s, maybe not unlike some of us, uh, who was returning to Japan, his homeland, after some, some years of training in China. Difficult study. He comes home and he says he returned empty-handed. Return empty-handed, and that's the monk that would go on to transmit the Soto Zen lineage in Japan. He returned empty-handed, but he was, he was carrying an ancient tradition of Buddhist practice in the form of zazen, in the form of meditation, and in the form of the precepts. Um, yeah, he returned empty-handed, but apparently had such a profound insight, experience, awakening, that it changed his life. And he couldn't say that he came home with full hands, right? It's provocative. So he came home with Zazen, he came home with the precepts, and I am fond of saying that the two of these together, Zen meditation and Zen precepts or Bodhisattva precepts, those can be said to comprise the entire path of Zen practice. That's it. We can, we can all go. So that monk was uh, Ehe Dogen, Dogen Zenji. Um, and he brought that path of practice of meditation and precepts, precepts as rules of training. Um, he brought that back to Japan and then generation after generation to the founder of this temple and to us. So many thanks to the ancestor. So I, I'm, uh, I'm fond of pointing out that um, oftentimes meditation gets taught by itself uh, without the accompanying practice of the precepts. And this can be a little disorienting, I think. Um, I think a function of that is probably the most common question that I receive is, Koto, how do I take my practice off the meditation cushion? Does that ring any bells for people? And there's this way, there's this way of course, that what we cultivate on the cushion in terms of meditation like, finds its way into our life. Like it changes our heart, it changes our mind our way of relating with ourselves, our way of relating with others. That is totally true. And also come at it from this other direction, which is precepts, the rules of training. So the precepts are up because we're, we're starting a four-week series on the practice of the precepts, just this foundational teaching in Zen. Great way to start the year. Um, so I will, 
I will give something of the background and the why and um, introduce you to some of the key principles with the precepts. And then uh, Zach Smith, who frequently is, frequently is here, uh, will take us further the second week, then our dear friend Michael, and then the fourth will be by Zach. But there are some key things that I wanna, I wanna convey here at the beginning to sort of get us off on the right foot with precepts practice. Generally speaking, in zazen, in meditation, we're participating, we're participating in this like, unfathomable world through the practice of stillness. In zazen, our contribution is stillness. And little by little, just bit by bit, we realize peace through compassion. And in precepts practice, through the rules of training, instead of our contribution being stillness, our contribution is activity. It's like, how do I actually live a life? How do I live my life? Just this very basic question. But interestingly, the, the, the process or the progress is the same. It's just like little by little, the heart opens up and starts to realize something about compassion and something about peace. So precepts. I was poking around for some good definitions of precepts because it's kind of a funky word. Um, the one that I, I really liked that had an etymological basis was calling it a rule of action, how we act, a rule for ourselves of action. Also in the tradition, very common to call it a training rule or a, a point of training. Um, the, way these, the way these originally came about is kind of an interesting, interesting point because um, I don't know about you, but I, I hear about training rules, I get a little tense. I get a little tense, I'm like, don't tell me what to do, man. And um, it helped me to know that they didn't arrive like all as a lump, like, okay, this is how you're gonna live your life, A, B, C, and D, ready, go. And that's the practice. Interestingly, in the, in the history, when the, uh, as far as the, the story goes, Buddha's in the, in the original Buddhist community, and um, the disciples, people who are training with the Buddha, uh, to paraphrase, saying something like, hey, we really need some rules here. We really, we really need some, like, let's shore this up, this Buddhist community. And the Buddha was actually hesitant to do so. He didn't, like, he didn't jump on that opportunity to create a rule. But instead, when he saw that there was a specific occasion where you know, something went astray, like somebody got hurt, um, other principles, on that occasion, he would lay down one training rule with a very clear rationale. So um, Okamura Roshi, uh, this fabulous teacher, characterizes the, the creation of this set of rules as like a record of the mistakes of Buddhist practitioners, which um, I find really encouraging, in fact. It's, it's humanizing. Yeah. So as these, um, as these rules came to be laid down in the, in, the, in the early tradition, 
They were done for a number of reasons, but I think I can consolidate the reasons to basically be um, for the welfare of beings, for the comfort of the community, um, to help us restrain our harmful impulses um, and to guard against them arising. And this one's always been interesting to me. Um, to um, inspire faith in another person. Have a, have a rule of training such that my behavior actually doesn't harm someone's faith in the practice. Isn't that interesting? And a couple of other principles. One of them is protecting the Dharma, protecting the teaching. Because you can, you can imagine a sort of raucous community of Buddhist monks in the early tradition. Uh, if things were really going awry, uh, folks in the public seeing them and being like, this, this practice, if this is the result, I don't want anything to do with it. You know, it's understandable that that would be so. The mirror image of that is how inspiring it can be to, to meet people who have lived a, a really committed life to precepts and zazen. Like Suzuki Roshi was certainly one of these people we hear about. And I, I was recently at this, um, this celebration of the 100th, 100th anniversary of Soto Zen in North America. Uh, I've talked about it a little bit in here, so you've heard, some of you have heard about it. Um, something I have not mentioned, there was a teacher there who gave a, an informal talk. She's a disciple, a Dharma heir of uh, Katagiri Roshi, who was abbot here for, for a little while. Um, and what she said about him was so touching to me. She said that Katagiri, his most important teaching was his practice that he was so sincere about how he lived his life. That, I love this part, he never acted like he knew the, like he knew the right answer or knew what, knew what you should do, but he knew just what he had to do and he did it. You know, his own, his own comportment, his own conduct, his way of being in the world was the teaching. And I think there's some, something connected to the precepts there. In practice, what working with, uh, working with precepts, um, one of the ways that it can function is that we can grow sensitive to the ways that we fracture community or the ways that we help support and create it. Um, in fact, in the, in the, I guess, all the Buddhist traditions that I know of, one of the, way, one of the ways that the community is known or the, the way the, the community is um, delineated is that they share a common set of rules that they live by. And for this tradition, it's these bodhisattva precepts, these 16 precepts. Um, I, see, uh, I see a resident or two, or people who have spent some time in residence here, who also know creating harmony in a place like this is not easy. And what you might know about is that we actually have a list of rules that's like 10, 10 11, 12 pages long of like, um, Oh, uh, things as simple as like bowing to each other in the morning on the way to Zazen. Or uh, things as mundane as like um, 
Oh, we have one that's not written down, but an unspoken rule. We store our brooms with the brush up. So we don't hurt the brushes. You know? So, there are all these mundane ways, and then there are, of course, significant ways that we can fracture community or we can create intimacy within it. Fracturing an intimacy, how do we support, like, how does our conduct support actually freedom for the people we're around? How does it support suffering? How does our conduct support violence even? Or how does it support peace? So Zazen and the precepts, way, 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 way back in the day, uh, the teaching was called Dhamma Vinaya, Dharma Vinaya. It's two terms. We usually hear about the Dharma, the teaching now. And you don't all usually hear this compound word. It was Dharma, the teaching, and the Vinaya, the rules of practice. It was hyphenated. The, the two together comprise the, the path. Akiba Roshi, maybe one of the more senior priests in uh, North America, calls the 16 precepts that we'll talk about more in specifics here in a few minutes. He talked about these as the backbone. They're the backbone of one's practice. They're the structure. And then our task, he said, was how to develop the muscles, like how to live within them. Okay. 16 training rules. They're divided up into three, three um, sections, I guess. Uh, the first is the three refuges. Uh, second is something called the three pure precepts. And the third is something called the 10 grave precepts. And um, at, some point, at some point in Buddhist history, this happened in Japan, the 300 some odd rules that were established as the, the early Vinaya were there, the, the Dhamma Vinaya, these 300 rules that monks would take up, vow to practice with, be trained by. Those were there, and then there was also this additional ordination that they would take. They would take these 16, 16 bodhisattva precepts in addition, so they would do them both. And then at some point in Japan, they're like, um, the 300, not anymore, not anymore. So um, it's kind of, it's complicated how that happened. I'm not really gonna unpack it at the moment, but um, it was a significant shift in the lineages that came through Japan to us. Um, that the ordination, the, the commitment, the rules of training became these 16, rather than having the big Vinaya plus the 16. So the three refuges. In the way we chant them here, is, I take refuge in Buddha, I take refuge in Dharma, and I take refuge in Sangha. There's comment, commentary that goes along with these three. One of the ways we relate to refuge is, um, like refuge clearly conjures, conjures the, uh, the notion of safety. I was looking up in the uh, Pali English Dictionary. I love this expression. I put myself into the shelter of, I put myself into the shelter of the Buddha. 
I put myself into the shelter of the Dharma and I put myself into the shelter of the Sangha. And why this is important with precept practice is having like some kind of home base. And I think for a lot of us that's zazen, where it's like my, my heart is steady, my body is safe, my life is safe. I practiced with a monk here for a long time who said um, he knew zazen was the right practice for him because that's when everything was safe. When he was on the cushion. Yeah. So I put myself into the shelter of the Buddha. And one of the ways of relating to that, of course, we've got the Buddha. uh, Relating to the historical Buddha as an inspiring figure, an exemplar. Um, Also inspired by and taking shelter in just how liberating uh, his insight was. Just how deep the wisdom was. We can, we can find shelter and safety in the example of the Buddha and then the profundity of what he had to teach. Like, we could spend the rest of our lives practice, practicing it with our whole heart and really not come to the bottom of it. Um, so taking refuge in the Buddha, taking refuge in the Dharma. You know, when the Buddha was passing away, um, around the time he was passing away, he said, whoever sees the Dharma sees me. And that was in response to the, the sort of the sadness of the Sangha. Like, oh, we're going to lose our teacher. What, do, what are we going to do? He was sometimes sharper than one might expect, you know? Buddha was sometimes like very direct. But in this instance, I feel like it was a very compassionate move. It wasn't about the Buddha's body, but he related to the Dharma as his body. But the, the teaching that he gave, the Dharma that he gave would, would survive him and live on. And that would be the true body of the Buddha. Putting myself into the shelter of the teachings, into the shelter of the Buddha. And important, important for me, important for us, I think the, the sort of insight, the qualities, the, the heart opening that happens for us through the practice, that's, that too is the Dharma. That's like us tasting the Dharma. It can be a shelter for us. And then refuge in the Sangha. I mentioned earlier that one of the ways of one of the ways of delineating a sangha, an assembly, uh, a community, is by a shared set of rules. Back in the day, they called it a shared recitation, because uh, every month or twice a month, depending, they would all, everyone would get together, and this is really sweet. Actually, they would confess everything that they did that month that was not in line with their vows to another Dharma friend. And then all of them together would chant the rules. And that was their way of realigning the community, bringing the community back in harmony. We still do something like that. We, we don't tend to do the um, laying out our misdeeds in a specific way with everyone, but we do in a sort of formal way, um, take responsibility for all of our karma for that month. And then we recite the Bodhisattva precepts together. We're doing that on Friday, full moon ceremony. 
We'll see. See how it goes. I bring up the shared recitation because there's something about the felt sense of Sangha that felt important to me to convey today, and that was, um, you know, this tradition of the shared recitation. You can imagine, I mean, you can imagine this room, lights kind of dim, all the candles lit, and everyone standing, their palms like this, facing the front of the room, and all of us chanting in unison our 16 practices that we do together. And there's like, there's the sweetness of limbic resonance. There's the sound of everyone's voice. There's literal harmonizing. You know, the coming together. The coming together is quite beautiful. And then I, t you know, I take this, and then I imagine the same thing happening at the same time at Green Gulch, in principle. Often the calendars are a little off, but let's just say. Same thing happening at Tassajara, our monastery. And then I think of Abhayagiri, the Theravada monastery, doing their, their full moon puja. Similar thing, coming together, chanting for the evening. And the same thing that's happening there is happening in Thailand. And the same thing that's happening here is happening in all the Zen temples. You know, very quickly, the, the sense of connection and community gets very, very big of this um, shared practice. It stretches across space, it stretches across time, and stretches across tradition, in fact. Yeah. So precept practice begins with taking refuge. I know we're going to get into many of the details of these With the time that I have, I know that there's one thing that I really want to communicate. And that is, that's an, it's an attitude, actually. It's an attitude and it's a process. You know, we said it toward the beginning, like, um, there's, a, there's a way, having, having a list of rules and having those put out there, like training rules, it's a real, like, not only, not only does it make me tense, but... Um, there's the danger, in fact, of using those rules as a way to like judge yourself, shame yourself. There are varieties of self-abuse that we do. Really important to me to talk about this for a sec. I want to propose that there's actually quite a different process that we can take up with regard to precept practice. Um, of course, it, it, it was very fruitful to me to treat these, treat these as like prohibitions for a good long time. I don't have a tendency toward shame. I'm very shy. I have a tendency toward shyness, but not toward shame. So that, that was fortunate, and I could take up the precepts in a way that was like, oh yeah, just don't X, just don't Y. And it made it so simple, but it doesn't really work for everyone. Um, yeah, what I wanted to communicate, quite a different approach that I am, am just actually learning about these years after doing precept practice. I heard a, a new understanding of this while I was at this celebration. It was quite beautiful. And it's that it's this basic process. We commit 
We commit to each of these practices, not killing, not stealing, not misusing sexuality, and so on. We commit to them, and then in Suzuki Roshi's words, we give ourselves a very wide field. He talked about, he talked about giving your, your cow a very wide pasture, and then you watch. Just give yourself a very wide field, and then you watch what you do. It's not like you don't, you, don't, um, you don't try to grapple with your mind, wrestle your mind, suffocate your mind, tell your mind it's no, like, no good. Um, these are definite ways to hurt. But instead, commit, give yourself a really wide field. And what's interesting about this, in that really wide field, there is room for both your life-sustaining impulses, your life-giving impulses, and the impulses that want to harm, or the impulses toward enmity or ill will. There's room for all of that in there. And the thing is, if, um, if, we, if we direct ourselves to prohibit any arising of ill will, it's going to happen and we're going to be ignoring it or denying it or setting it aside. When the function, the function of the practice can really operate in that wide field that gives space for awareness. Awareness and our impulses to meet. That, that is the place where wisdom arises, some freedom arises, and compassion arises. I realize it's sort of a dangerous thing to say, you know, regarding precepts. I don't want this to be misunderstood at all. Uh, so I'm not saying like, oh, embra embrace, uh, embrace and act out your ill will, or X, Y, or Z. I'm really not saying that. Um, but there's a way that the precepts are calling us into a mind that's large enough to be able to hold with compassion our impulse toward life-giving and our impulse toward life-taking. Everything has to be included. Yeah. That was the most important thing. So I'll just say, in addition to the three refuges, take refuge in the Buddha, take refuge in the Dharma, take refuge in the Sangha. I'm just gonna say the other 13. The three pure precepts are, I vow to refrain from all evil. I vow to make every effort to live in enlightenment. I vow to live and be lived for the benefit of all beings. I'm going to borrow Reb Anderson's translation for the other 10. Not killing. Not stealing. Not misusing sexuality. Not speaking falsehoods. Not dealing with intoxicants. Not discussing the faults of others. Not praising self and disparaging others. Not begrudging dharma or material wealth. Not being angry. And not disparaging the triple treasure. In one phrase, 
to refrain from unwholesome actions. We commit this wide field. Impulses of all kinds come up. Some of them we act on, some of them we don't. If we have harmed someone, acknowledging that to ourselves, confessing that to ourselves, and then realigning. Um, last thing I'll say, there's this, Jiryu, the soon to be the abbot of Green Gulch, gave this teaching. He was like, regarding, regarding the full moon ceremony, regarding the ceremony of reciting every month, he was like, how did they know we were going to have to do that? Like, they knew 2,500 years ago that we were going, every month we were going we to break the precepts and we would have to recommit. How did they know that? Isn't that embarrassing? Kind of. It's just, uh, maybe it's just honest. Um, anyway, give ourselves a wide field. There's a lot to say about the precepts, much in the way that there's a lot to say about zazen. Precepts, they're not the sexiest topic, um, but I think that they, they, along with zazen, truly form the foundation of Zen practice. I think, uh, I think if you have a, a good grasp of these two things, everything else unfolds from there. And if, you, if you're ever pondering this question, oh, how do I take my Zen practice into my life? This is a great place to start, how we are with beings. So I'm hopeful these uh, four weeks can provide something of, a, something of an introduction, maybe more than an introduction. I hope it sparks your interest to want to look more into the, the Bodhisattva precepts, listen to other talks. Reb Anderson has this fabulous book called Being Upright, Zen Meditation and the Bodhisattva Precepts. And uh, Diane Rosetto is another teacher in our lineage who has a book called Waking Up to What You Do. Anyway, Zach will have something lovely to say as well, Michael. Yeah, wishing you well for that. Well, yeah. Sorry, I have a quick question. Uh, can you actually explain the last precept? I wasn't quite sure if I heard it. Yeah, what was your thought? Oh, of course, yeah. I'll do that and then we can have some group discussion. The last one is not disparaging the triple treasure. The triple treasure is the three refuges. So not to disparage the Buddha or disparage the teaching or disparage the Sangha. Um, that's not to be confused with not questioning the teaching there is this like really hefty tradition in China and Japan where you like, you really investigate, really, really investigate the teaching. So it's not like that. But um, yeah, I wonder what exactly slandering the Buddha would look like. I could imagine, yeah. Um, slandering the Sangha is easier to imagine to me where it's like, oh, that, that understanding, oh, that's wrong. But that, you know, they've got it all wrong. Um, Bhikkhu Analio came out with this book not too long ago, um, Superiority Conceit in the Buddhist Traditions. Whoa. <laughs> um,
conceit is one of the last things to go with liberation. So we don't have to practice that between traditions. Uh, relatedly, Dogen, Dogen um, and his teacher both said they refused to say that they taught the Zen school or the Zen sect. Instead, they said, I teach Buddha Dharma. And with that, I think we should stretch. And then we can, we can talk about small groups. <laughs>